0: Swiss theologian uh, Hans Balthasar once said, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. You know, God did not create his people for failure. He didn't call us to a life of defeat or subjugation to this world or the ways of this world. No, he, he created and called us to a life of victory and freedom. God has called us to succeed in this world, and He's given us everything that we need to succeed in this world. What we do with all of that, well, that's up to us. The truth is, for the follower of Christ, succeeding in this life is probably not as elusive as we think it is. In fact, I don't believe, I don't believe it is nearly as difficult to experience real success in this life as we sometimes make it out to be. See, because the problem is, We don't always recognize success when we do experience it because what our culture defines as success is very different from God's definition of success. And so it's not so much a matter of needing to figure out how to be successful that is so elusive because true success is clearly spelled out in God's Word. The real issue for many Christians today is not trying to find success even though we think that's the problem. The real issue is understanding what true success is, because if our definition of success is incorrect, then we can go through life believing that we're failing, even though we're trying very hard to live for God and to be obedient to His Word and to honor other people. And all the while, we're seeing others who are not living that way, maybe not even trying to live that way, who seem to be experiencing all the success in the world. So we become discontent and disillusioned and unsettled and sometimes even depressed because we think we're failing at life when the very opposite may be true and we don't even realize it because we've been fed a lie We've been indoctrinated culturally to believe in a definition of success that couldn't be further from the truth. And unfortunately, that lie has crept its way into much of the American church. And so we have all these Christians today who are walking around unhappy and they feel unfulfilled because they think they've failed at life because they're not experiencing Western culture's definition of success. Listen. God's promise of success for his followers has absolutely nothing to do with a relentless pursuit of the American dream and everything to do with the relentless pursuit of Christ and all the benefits that we experience in this life and the next because of his presence in our lives and the fruit, listen, the spiritual fruit that comes out of living that way because of the victory he's already secured that we can walk in every single day no matter our circumstances on any given day. I personally believe there are many Christians who are wildly successful followers of Christ, people who should be teaching and mentoring and discipling others according to how they've lived their own lives for Christ so that other people can follow their example. But instead, I watch them shrink back from ministry and all that God has called them to do because they're embarrassed by their circumstances, which according to secular society's standards may look unsuccessful to us. We've bought into this great lie. That as long as we have the right job and the right car and the right house and a perfect marriage and our kids are the best at everything and people like us and we're outgoing and always confident and always know what to say and do in every situation, then we must be successful people. And that same lie says if you're not always so popular, maybe maybe even some people just don't like you. And maybe you don't have the best job. Maybe you've even been fired from a job. And you don't have a lot of money, and your house isn't all that impressive compared to your friends, and it's hard to get ahead, and you feel awkward around new people, and sometimes you just don't know what to say or what to do, and sometimes your relationships are difficult, and you have to really struggle to make some of them work. Well, maybe I'm just not that successful. And yet, not only are none of those things qualifiers for true success according to Scripture, but in some cases, you know, the very opposite is true. In some cases, producing real spiritual fruit in your life for Christ, living a truly successful Christian life, will mean not always being popular. In fact, at times it will mean some people just won't like you. At times being successful will mean giving up what you could have for yourself so that you can give more to someone else. Sometimes true success will mean feeling awkward around others because your faith doesn't fit in with your surroundings. Okay, and That can cost you, by the way. Yeah, that can cost you a friendship or a job or an opportunity for advancement because of what you stand for. Sometimes being a success means struggling in your relationships because you're not willing to compromise your convictions. I'm convinced that if we really understood the true measure of success as defined by God's Word, and we believed it, that we'd have a lot less unsatisfied, unfulfilled Christians and a lot more fruit coming out of the American church that we often find today. And this is important Not only for us as individuals, but for the church as a whole. Because people are watching us. They see what we're working for. They see what we've placed our affections on. They see what is driving us, what is motivating us every day. And if our measure of success is exactly the same as the man or woman who's spiritually lost, who has their uh, soul, they've sold it in pursuit of the American dream, well, it's no wonder uh, we're unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And it's no wonder they've no interest in knowing Jesus Christ if we're chasing after the same things the world is, if instead of pursuing the American dream, if they saw us pursuing Him and they saw us content, satisfied, fulfilled with the success, the spiritual success, the fruit that's coming out of our lives because God is with us. If they saw Christians as people who have no need of the fleeting success that our culture dangles in front of us, but instead are people full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. If they saw us full of the Spirit of Christ, regardless of where we may appear on the scale of success based on the American dream, then I'm telling you, we would have people coming to us wanting to know, in fact, demanding to know what our secret of success is because of the contentment and fulfillment they see in our lives, an orchard of spiritual fruit instead of a really impressive pile of dead branches. And the key to that for every Christian is to understand true success as defined by God. And so as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Revelation, we find some important lessons here in this story concerning the true measure of success in this next chapter. And it echoes the lessons that Jesus himself taught about success and how he lived his own life while he was here on earth. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Revelation chapter 18. We'll begin by reading the first eight verses. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. As discussed in the last chapter, although Babylon was a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates River, modern-day Iraq, it's the spirit of Babylon that is being discussed in chapters 17 and 18, because in every age... The spirit of Babylon has been present in society, beginning with literal Babylon that was known for its hostility toward God and direct opposition to the authority and power of God. Again, as uh, mentioned last time, Genesis 11 paints a picture of Babylon, as Merrill Tenney put it, as the seat of the civilization that expressed organized hostility to God. To the Jews, he says, Babylon was the essence of all evil, the embodiment of cruelty, the foe of God's people, and the lasting type of sin, carnality lust, and greed. And then in John's day, when he was recording this revelation, it was Rome that most expressed the spirit of Babylon. And according to his vision here in Revelation, in the last days, the spirit of Babylon will be expressed through a one-world religion and a one-world government. And so while chapter 17 primarily deals with religious Babylon, which we've already been through, chapter 18 primarily deals with political and commercial or economic Babylon. And so in these two chapters we find the complete picture of the evil, false religious, and secular powers that will oppress the people of God increasingly in these last days. And yet, as announced by God in the last chapter and carried out by God in this one, we find the final destruction of Babylon. And so this chapter is actually, uh, it's a funeral dirge. It's a song recorded by John as Babylon falls once and for all. And this funeral dirge is in three parts, verses 1 through 8 that we just read. Outlines an angel that declares that Babylon has fallen. Another angel calling God's people to come out of the city. He's calling God's people to come out as he proclaims judgment against her many sins, which we'll come back to in the second part, verses 9 through 20. We hear a great lament from three different segments of society that profit from this world power. The kings of the world who committed adultery with her. The merchants who supplied her with everything she desired. And the maritime industry that delivered cargo to her from around the world. And then in the final verses, 21 through 24 of this chapter, we'll see the actual fall of this world power, which, by the way, um, would have looked like Rome to John. Remember, when John was writing this, Rome was at the height of its glory. And with its power unchallenged, Rome ruled the known world, and the nation served her interest as obedient servants. So this dirge, this mournful song, is a description of God's responses To the cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal back in chapter six, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And here we see God's response. To that cry, it is a prophetic picture given to John of the absolute destruction and desolation of modern-day Babylon, where the proud achievements of the human race are reduced to barren wastelands where only demonic and detestable creatures exist. And so God calls His people out of the city because it's doomed. And remember, we're we're not talking about literal Babylon. We're talking about the spirit of Babylon that has always been present is present today and will be present at the end of days, which is why this call from God for His people to be set apart from the rest of this world is a theme throughout history and throughout Scripture and applies as much to us today as it will in the last days. In Isaiah 52:11, the prophet cried out, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Likewise, in Jeremiah 51, 45, go out of the midst of her, my people, let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. And of course, the entire Jewish race had its origin with God's command to Abram, go from your country to the land that I will show you, Genesis 12, 1. And then in the New Testament, the apostle Paul asks the question, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? 2 Corinthians six fourteen. because from the moment sin entered this world, God's people have been called out We've been called out to be set apart, to be different. And as a result, the persecuted church has always faced the tension of living in a culture that is hostile to the message of Christ, and so God calls us out. He always has, and He always will, until the very end of this age, as we see in John's vision here. Uh, St. Augustine once said, We must renounce our rights as citizens of this world, and flee unto God on the wings of faith. Because ultimately, this world in its fallen state is doomed. And so we are called different. God says we are different from the rest of the world, set apart. He calls us to come out from the rest of the world. Verse 4, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. He's reiterating the warnings he issued to the churches all the way back in chapter 3, if you remember that. So some of this is a bit of a review of that chapter. But listen, uh, if Jesus says it again, then we need to hear it again. Because look, the gospel of Christ is subversive by nature. It is disruptive, which means the message of the church is subversive, which means our mission to this culture is subversive. In other words, we're supposed to be different from the rest of the world. We're supposed to live our lives against the grain of the rest of society. We're supposed to live our lives in a way that doesn't make any sense to an unbelieving world. The Apostle Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, we see it all through scripture. We're called out. We're God's people. And being one of God's people means being called out by him to live a different kind of life than the one you would live if you were not one of his people. We're supposed to be different, called out, set apart. That is God's expectation for his people, for each one of us to live our lives, called out by him and set apart for him, set apart from the rest of the population, not separated, but set apart or set in contrast with everyone else, why? So that it would be obvious to those who don't follow Christ who the followers of Christ actually are and just how different life is when you choose to follow him. Because the more we, listen, the more we try to bring the church into a state of harmony with the culture around it, the more the church begins to look like the culture around it. I've been doing this in some capacity for almost 30 years. The more we try to bring the church into a state of harmony with the culture around it, the more the church begins to look like the culture around it. And the more the church looks like the culture around it, listen, the less effective the church becomes at making disciples. Because why would anyone who's not a part of the church be interested in the life of the church when it looks just like the life they already have? And so it's, it's one of the, utmost, of, of the utmost importance. It's a top priority priority. For every follower of Jesus Christ to understand what your life is supposed to look like when you're called out by God because it is decidedly not the same life you had before. It's different. Living for Jesus doesn't look the same as living for yourself. It's different. This world's definition of success and God's definition of success couldn't be more different. being called out by God is more than simply believing in Jesus Christ and then hanging out with your Christian friends on Sundays. It's living an entirely different kind of life, one that makes no sense to the unbeliever. And by the way, nobody gets a free pass here, right? There isn't a single Christian on this planet who God looked at and said, you know what, I created all these people and I called them out to serve a great purpose on this earth, except you. You're you're the exception. For you, it's it's enough to just believe in me and go to church with your friends on Sunday. No, there isn't one example of that in all of Scripture. Every one of us has been called out to live a different kind of life Different to the point that when people encounter us, there should never be any doubt in their minds that we are followers of Christ because it is unmistakably clear by simply watching how we live and behave and talk and conduct our daily lives that we're different than everyone else. And it's, it's easy to blame the church as an organization For that, for looking too much like the secular culture today, it's much harder to take a long, honest look at ourselves in the mirror individually and then consider how our lives are actually different, if at all, from the rest of the world. But that's exactly what we need to do. Because it's not the organization of the church or its structure or size or whether we meet in big buildings or in people's homes. It's none of those things that separate us from the rest of the world. No, it's how each of us lives our lives every day that separates us from the rest of the world. We're not to be cloistered in little groups where we don't let anyone else in. No, no, no. We're to be integrated in this world. But different set apart we should stand out like a sore thumb the fact is the church looks just like the world when we look just like the world but God called us out of the world to be different English theologian John Stott once said instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status quo the church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals values standards and lifestyle a realistic alternative to the contemporary technocracy which is marked by bondage, materialism, self-centeredness, and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. Such a church, joyful, obedient, loving, and free, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. It is when the church evidently is the church and is living a supernatural life of love by the power of the Holy Spirit that the world will believe. God called us out of the world to be different so that the church would distinguish itself from the unbelieving world around it as a testimony to the glory of God at work in his peculiar people. Let's keep reading verses 9 through 20. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo any more. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearl, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those trades whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So the governing heads of all nations who have entered into questionable trade with the commercial center of the world are now weeping and wailing because the very system they've placed their faith and trust in has utterly failed. Hans Lilly calls it the bankruptcy of an arrogant existence which believed that it was secure because it was living in a perverted political order. Verse 10, in a single hour, your judgment has come. Verse 17, in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Verse 19, in a single hour, she has been laid waste. The victory over this evil world power, this new world order is decisive fast And final, which is why there is a sudden shift from an extended lament in verses 9 through 19 to a call for rejoicing in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You see, we're called victorious because the victory is already ours, but we have to walk in it. We have to willingly separate ourselves from the ways of this world and live as the men and women he says that we are because he's already secured our victory. J.I. Packer once said, the stars may fall, but God's promises will stand and be fulfilled. God always does what he says he will do. Always. In fact, if if you've ever been uh, disappointed by something you were sure God was going to do in your life and it didn't actually happen, it's not because God didn't do his part. God always does his part. Maybe not how we want him to or when we want him to, but God always does what he says he will do. So the question we need to ask ourselves when things aren't going the way we want them to or thought they would isn't whether or not God is doing his part, but rather am I doing my part? Because the success of his plan for our lives is guaranteed. We just have to follow it, which means not following this world. See, we have a part to play, In seeing God's promises fulfilled in our lives, we do. How many times do we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God telling his people, look, if you do this, if you follow my plan, then this blessing, this victory, this fulfillment of my plan in your life will be yours for the taking. But if you do this, if you follow your own plan, the outcome for you is going to be very different we always have a part to play in God's plan for our lives. He told Moses he would lead the Israelites out of Egypt, but when they got to the Red Sea, an impassable barrier to their successful escape, Moses had a part to play in getting the people across that body of water with Pharaoh's army bearing down on them and the Israelites bearing down on Moses. He had to turn his back on every immediate urgent need and all the other voices trying to tell him what to do and walk out to that water in faith, stretching out his staff, believing that God would do what He said he would do and as Moses did his part the promise was fulfilled. God told Joshua that he would lead the Israelites into the promised land but Joshua still had to march around the walls the impenetrable walls of Jericho before God fulfilled the promise by supernaturally bringing those walls down. Joshua had a part to play. David was anointed to be king of Israel But he still had to go out onto the battlefield and face the giant Goliath in battle. He still had to prove himself faithful to honor Saul, even when Saul was still trying to kill him. The fact is, David had to learn to live and act like a king before he ever became one. He had a part to play in God's promise being fulfilled in his life. In every instance, God did his part, but the one to whom the promise was given always had to do their part as well. He said to his people in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who are called out by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. If there's a promise for God's people there, but notice it's preceded by an if, right? The promise is preceded by an if. If you do your part, God says, you will reap the blessing of that promise because I'm always faithful to do my part just to be clear just we're all on the same page it, it's not our faithfulness that makes god makes god faithful it's it, his faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness he is who he is and our experience of him whether meeting with our approval or not right whatever you think about god those feelings do not alter who he is in any way shape or form In Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses says, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God keeps his promises distinctly because that is who he is, a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And our faithfulness in believing that or a lack of it has no bearing whatsoever on the truthfulness of that statement. God is God. And so our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence, and likewise our hopelessness, our doubt, our distrust, and our uncertainty. All of those things may have a great effect on who we are, but they have absolutely no effect on who God is. So our confidence in Him isn't what makes Him worthy of our confidence. Our faith in Him is not what makes Him faithful. Our trust in Him is not what makes Him trustworthy. And our hope in Him is not what guarantees the hope that we have in Him. That's why the Apostle Paul said all the promises of God find their yes in him, not in us. Second Corinthians one twenty, Because all of God's promises for us are fulfilled in Christ. The point is, God always finishes what he starts. He makes good on every promise, every commitment, every plan he's ever established in your life. God always finishes what he started, which also means the good work that he started in you the day you gave your heart and life to Christ. He's going to finish that good work in your life so you don't ever have to wonder if God will complete the work that he began in you, because he absolutely will. The Apostle Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, the foundation for your spiritual progress in this life is ultimately rooted in what God has done. Your spiritual success is rooted in what God has done, is doing, and will do in your future, because God always finishes what he started. But look, how that progress unfolds in your life Largely depends on you finishing what you've started. Again, Deuteronomy 7, 9. The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with who? With those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is always going to do His part. He will always finish what He started. The question is, will you? Will you finish what you started the day you gave your heart and life to Christ? And here's why. That question is so important because your life on this earth was never meant to be second place to your life in heaven. You get that, right? When God created the earth and all of us, it was meant to be the dwelling place of mankind with God. And of course, we messed that up. And yet, because God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life with God by way of His Holy Spirit in us. That is His gift to us. And through that gift, the moment the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of His people, the kingdom of heaven on earth in that moment was restored in us. You understand, uh, this, this world isn't just a place where we try to hang on by the skin of our teeth until we all get to heaven. No, this is God finishing what He started through you and me. And one day, according to the revelation, as we'll see, He's going to remake this world for us to dwell in it with Him forever. So don't think of this world as a bad place that you have to endure until you get to heaven. It's not our home in its current state. That's true. But it will be when he sets things right and remakes it. And until then, as long as you do your part, as long as you finish what you started the day you gave your heart and life to him, you can experience in your own life here on earth, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. Talk about success. That's His promise to you. Victory in this life and in the next. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence? And will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Interestingly, we talked about this a few weeks ago. That word sorcery in in the ancient Greek is pharmakia. Uh, it's where we get our word pharmacy or pharmaceuticals from. It literally means to prepare drugs. It's used twice in Scripture to refer to the sins of man and the manipulation of the false prophet uh, to deceive all nations. The point being, he will, he will stop at no uh, lengths and, and use every trick at his disposal to deceive the people of the earth. Verse 24, And in her ways, uh, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So, an angel takes up a stone like a great millstone and throws it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Just as Jeremiah said, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, Jeremiah fifty-one sixty-four. And just as Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea, Matthew eighteen six is exactly what John is seeing happening here. Babylon, the spirit of Babylon in this world, misleading, manipulating people away from Christ. You see, God always fulfills his promises. And so the spirit of Babylon, this world system, will once and for all be defeated like great stones sinking to the bottom of the sea for all those she has led astray by her sorcery. Now listen, the only extent to which that will affect the people of God negatively is the extent to which we have invested ourselves into that very system because God has already won this victory for us. That's why we're called different That's why we're called victorious, and that's why we're called free. Because the spirit of Babylon will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. You see, for those who are in Christ, we are free from the subjugation, the bondage of this world system that so many are slave to. As Jesus said in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The victory that we have in Christ secures our freedom from the ways of this world. The 17th century English preacher and author Thomas Watson said to serve God, to love God, to enjoy God is the sweetest freedom in the world. It's absolutely true. And yet, do you know there's only one way that you can actually experience that kind of freedom in your own life? It's in Christ alone. There's no other way to ever truly be free in this life, from, uh, free from fear, free from sin, free from doubt, free from everything that imprisons you, that holds you back, that keeps you from living to the potential that he embedded in your DNA when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. There is no other way to truly live free than to live in Christ. It's also the most successful life you could ever live. That's why the apostle Paul said, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1, he sets you free so that there's no longer anything that can keep you from becoming exactly who you were created to become. And so according to Paul, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, which means you are free from the grip of fear and death and failure that condemnation brings. You're also dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.11, which means you are free from the shackles of sin, and you have eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23, so you're free to pursue whatever God calls you to in this life, because your future is secure in the next. Are you getting the picture? When you're in Christ Jesus every single thing in this world that exists to enslave you and keep you from becoming all that God created you to be, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from every single bit of it, which is why Christians never struggle with fear or sin or a lack of confidence in doing what God has called us to do, right? Uh Uh-oh. Houston, we have a problem. Right? If in Christ we've truly been set free from everything that exists on this earth to hold us back from being everything we were designed and created to be, then why in the world do we still struggle with the weight of fear and sin and doubt? Well, it isn't because he hasn't held up his end of the bargain. Now, every single thing that Jesus said he would accomplish on this earth, he has accomplished, including... A permanent victory over sin, death, and every power of hell that conspires to imprison us. So why do we still struggle with the very things Jesus set us free from? Why do we sometimes still live as if we're in bondage to everything he's already conquered? It's not because he's holding us back. You see, whether it's uh, hate, fear, greed, idolatry, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, a lack of faith, lust, trust, Uh, lack of peace or joy pick your poison whatever it is that is holding you back today from the life that you know you could be and should be living none of it not one shred of what is holding you back is his doing the truth is we live in prisons that we build around ourselves we do we live in prisons we build around ourselves you're as close to God right now as you want to be think about that I mean He's not holding you at arm's length. You're as close to God right now as you want to be. We live in prisons we build around ourselves. We choose sometimes daily. We choose to live in bondage to things he set us free from the moment our lives were hidden in Christ. We allow ourselves to be subjugated by fear, sin, and doubt to the point that we live as if Jesus never set us free even though every single thing that is holding you back today was nailed to a Roman cross and put to death once and for all 2,000 years ago. Right? Because although Jesus rose from the dead, listen, the power of fear, sin, and doubt to rule over your life, those things did not rise with him. Those are things we willingly resurrect and keep on life support by our own doing. We allow ourselves to be subjugated by the spirit of Babylon in this world, even though God has already declared us free. We live in prisons that we build around ourselves. The problem, see, isn't that we want to be successful. That's not the problem. The problem is we bought into this world's definition of success rather than God's. Because God has called us to succeed in this world. He has. And He's given us everything that we need to succeed in this world. And so if you feel like you're failing at some aspect of your life right now, the question isn't a matter of what what do you still need from God. No, the question is what are you doing with what He's already given you? Because in Christ, you've already been declared by God to be different to be victorious, and to be free. And there's no greater success than that. Let's pray.